Let's go before the Lord this morning in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much for an opportunity to be here to worship you this morning. God, I pray and ask that you would just work mightily in and through this time. God, that you would bless us, that you would encourage us. God, that you would help us to see your word more clearly and that you would guide and direct us not only in hearing your word, but also applying your word, living out your word day by day as we learn from it today and go from here seeking to live it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. Today we find ourselves in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 24, and it's a rather well-known passage, the passage on the fruit of the Spirit. And believe it or not, you would think this would be a very easy sermon, a very easy message, and for whatever reason, I have labored over this text this week and trying to communicate it well, trying to communicate what this passage is all about in its context. And I hope to not lead you astray, I hope to be clear in what I am communicating as we work through this text this morning. But in order to understand Galatians 5, we need to understand all of Galatians. We need to understand what Galatians 5 says in its context of Galatians and what Galatians says in the context of the Scriptures, of the Bible as a whole. So if you remember, just by way of review, Galatia is a region, it's an area. There's a number of churches in this area. Paul has gone there. He has ministered to the people. He's now away from Galatia, and he's teaching, he's, he's correcting some false teaching that has happened in Galatia while he's been gone. That these churches, people have come in and said, yes, we understand this whole Jesus thing, this gospel thing, that Jesus died for your sins, but now you need Jesus plus something else. Jesus, namely, Jesus plus the law. You need to keep the Old Testament law that the law of God, with all of its commands, needs to be kept. Because if you don't, what they were saying basically is this, if you don't say that, the problem is, people are going to say, I'm saved by grace, and then they're going to go on and live a life of rebellion and wanton sin. That they will just descend into sin. And my fear is that there are many churches who actually, maybe not, they wouldn't put this on paper, but through the preaching of the Word, they actually begin to believe that. That they begin to preach this legalism. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. And that by doing these things, you somehow please God. Everybody knows that a good Christian carries a King James Bible and wears a suit and tie. right? They go to church on Sunday morning. They go to Sunday school. They go to church on Sunday morning. They go to Sunday evening service. They go to prayer meeting, right? That's what some, I think, churches actually begin to teach. Maybe not even purposefully. Paul says, you're not saved by what you do. It's not what you have done or what you do, but what Christ did for you. The law was never meant to justify you. And specifically, some teachers were coming and saying, you need to be circumcised. And Paul says, no, no. No, circumcision doesn't save you. All of the Old Testament was, it was meant to point to the fact that you can't keep the law. That the law shows you your need for a, sinner, for a Savior. Yes, it, it, it hems you in, but it also shows you that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. So the whole message of the Bible is that you are in rebellion against God. 
that you sinned against a holy and just God and that the wages of sin is death, but Christ came, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to live a perfect life and to die on the cross for your sins. That's the message of the whole Scripture. And then on that third day, He was raised from the dead and that He's coming back to rescue us. So we need to understand Galatians in that context and understand that Paul has spent the first four chapters of Galatians saying, you are not saved by keeping the law. You're not saved by keeping the law. You're not saved by keeping the law. And then in verse 5, we see this the shift of sorts, where he says, however, that doesn't mean that you can continue in sin. Yes, you are saved by grace, but that does not mean that you can continue in sin and say, oh, I'll sin all the more that grace may abound. May that never be the case. So that's the background of Galatians chapter 5, verses 19-24, through 24, which we're going to look at today. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Galatians 5, 19-24. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So I gave this really rough, really broad overview of the book of Galatians. That Paul's writing to correct this false teaching that we're not saved by works, we're not saved by keeping the law, but instead we're saved by grace. But I also think it's important for us to understand the immediate context of this passage. It's, it's important that we understand exactly what Paul just got done saying as we understand this passage with the so-called fruit of the Spirit. So when we look back, we look at verses 13-15, through 15, which we saw two weeks ago, we read this, For you are called to freedom, brethren, Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So yes, Christ set you free. Yes, you're no longer living under the law. You're not trying to keep the law so that you may be saved by it. That was never the point. Christ set you free from the law. But don't turn your freedom into into an opportunity to continue in sin. But instead, he says, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he says that... The work of God in our lives creates in us a love for God, which in turn creates a love for others. That the natural result of Christ setting us free, of freedom in Christ, is that we love one another. And he says, but, verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. In other words, be careful. If your attitude is not that of love, be careful that you're not consumed. Be careful that you actually examine yourselves and see if you are in the faith. 
Because when God comes into your life and He forgives you for your sin, He convicts you of your sin, the the natural response is for you to not only ask for His forgiveness, receive His forgiveness, but to forgive others. When you receive the love of God, the natural response, the only response is to love others. And He says, and if you don't love others, be careful. Examine yourselves. Because if you're biting and devouring one another, you're going to be consumed by one another. You see, he says, freedom that we have in Christ is not freedom to love ourselves, not freedom to be enslaved by our sinful passions, but instead freedom that produces this love for God and others. And then in verse 16 through 18, he says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So he says, be careful that you don't just continue in sin. Instead, walk by the Spirit. And if you walk by the Spirit, you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. You'll have victory. The victory is ours. It's theirs, what he says. But then verse 17, he says, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please. In other words, he says, But know that there's a battle that's going on. That there's this war, as we saw last week, that will continue in our hearts and in our minds, whereby sometimes we will want to do good and the fleshly desires in us will cause us to not do good. Or sometimes we will not, will want to do evil, but the spirit which resides in us will keep us from that evil. Praise God. So there are times when, I'll go back to my analogy of driving on my road. There are times when, so the law says, don't drive more than 45 miles per hour. There are times when I want to obey the law, right? And my desire is truly to obey the law. And yet the flesh says, no, no, no. 45 is just ridiculous on Route 235. You should drive 55. So I drive 55 or 60 or whatever the, right? So I drive, I drive faster than I should. But then there are times when the flesh is so real and so evident in me that I want to drive 75 and praise God that the Spirit of God within me says, no, 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 don't do the things you please. And the whole point of verse 17 is there's this conflict within us. And we don't always do the things we please. We don't always do that which is good. We don't always do that which is bad. And this conflict exists. He says, but, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. In other words, you will fail to keep the law. But you're not under the law. Praise God that though the battle is real and though you need to fight and though you need to fight like your life depends on it, praise God the war has been won by Jesus Christ. You're not under the law and it's not dependent on you keeping it. That's the beauty of the Gospel. He says the battle is real. The Spirit will lead us to victory. But that doesn't mean that human effort isn't involved. And it doesn't mean that it won't be difficult. That we need to fight But we do so knowing that Jesus has ultimately won the war even as we fight the battles. So there's this tension that exists in the book of Galatians. There's this tension that exists throughout this letter, the tension between faith and works, and this tension becomes especially evident in chapter 5. See, as I said earlier, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. However, Paul warns again and again that genuine faith is effective. That it is by grace, that it is through faith, but it does produce change in the life of the believer. In other words, one who is truly saved, his life will change. I can't tell you the number of people 
who have said to me that somebody came to church one time, they walked an aisle, they said a prayer, and they've never looked back, they've never confessed Christ, they've never borne any fruit, and that they believe that they're a Christian today. In fact, they may deny Christ, and that's not what Scripture, Scripture says. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith that the work of Christ and the life of the believer is effective. Now, don't hear me say this wrong, because there is tension that exists here. That our good works don't save us, but that salvation does produce good works. And they're not all the same in everyone. I know a young man who has struggled his whole life with drug and alcohol addiction. Right now, he's homeless, and his ministry, and I believe it is his ministry, is to minister to the homeless. But the, the drug and alcohol addiction, God is, I do see the fruit of the Spirit in his life, but the flesh is so strong that the battle is so real. And I, I, I can't help but look forward to the day when he goes home to be with the Lord and the battle is over. It's been won by Jesus Christ. But if he wasn't fighting, if he wasn't battling, if there was no fruit, then I would have to say, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And that's what we see in this text today. You see, salvation affects the life of a believer and it produces change. That's what led Calvin to say this. John Calvin said, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as, just as the heat of the sun uh, which warms the earth is not alone, and yet the sun is alone because it is constantly joined with light. He says that the sun produces heat to warm the earth, and the sun is conjoined with light. And Luther said this, he said, We say that justification is effective without works. Not that faith is without works. Justification is effective without works. Not that faith is without works. It is one thing that faith justifies without works. It is another thing that faith exists without works. Faith without works does not exist. So Paul has been saying, you can't be saved by circumcision or any kind of good work. No amount of outward conformity will bring about salvation. He says salvation, however, will produce good works. That's the message of Ephesians 2, 8-10. through 10. Right? We're not saved by, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, but the, the works are the result of that salvation. See, all along, Paul has been saying that these good works won't save you. The law won't save you. But he also says, so don't feed the flesh either, but instead walk by the Spirit. That's the context of Galatians 5, verses 19 through 24. So with that in mind, the first point in our sermon outline, the point number one is the, the evidence of feeding the flesh. The first thing we see is the evidence of feeding the flesh. Look at verses 19-21 through 21 with me. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Much has been made of this list. And actually, I think a good many commentaries focus way too much on this list. 
And while we could go through this list point by point and describe each of the items on this list in greater detail, I'm not sure that it would be most beneficial to do so in the limited time that we have here. The reason being so is I don't want you to focus on this list. Because this list, first of all, is not meant to be exhaustive. That's why Paul specifically says, and things like these. You may say, I struggle with none of these. And Paul says, oh, by the way, and things like these. He also says that these things are evident. I don't need to convince you that these things are wrong. They are evident. It's evident in you that these are the deeds of the flesh. You may deny it. You may fight against it. You may say, no, this is right. Jealousy is good and wonderful and awesome and immorality is wonderful. But it's evident that it's the deed of the flesh, not the work of the Spirit in your life. Furthermore, if all of our time is spent on these 15 things, on these, the, the wickedness of these 15 things, then you might think that the key to Christian living is simply to avoid these things, to avoid this list. And I don't think that at all is what Paul is trying to convey here. Instead, this list is meant to serve as a warning. You see, one doesn't need a magnifying glass or a microscope to see where these deeds come from. It's obvious. They stem from our fleshly desires. Immorality, from the flesh, not the Spirit. Idolatry, from the flesh, not the Spirit. And so on. So Paul is saying, don't carry out the desires of the flesh, whatever yours may be. Whatever the desires of your flesh are, those things which are opposed to God, your sinful nature causes, stirs up in, within you and says, do this, even though God says no, Right? I want what I want and I'm willing to sin in order to get it. Whatever the desire of your flesh is, don't carry it out. But instead, walk by the Spirit is what Paul has been saying. You see, this list should serve as an example of the types of things that if evident in our lives should give us pause. The whole point of this list is not to say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's to say, if these things are evident in your life, these types of things, you need to step back and evaluate your spiritual health. For they're clearly not the result of the Spirit's work in your life. So while this list is not meant to be exhaustive, I do believe it's broad and it's sweeping. And therefore, it's something that none of us should dismiss. Nobody in this room should be able to say, yeah, I don't struggle with those. None of those at all. Because Paul lists everything from sensuality, which is translated debauchery in the New, New International Version, and lasciviousness in the King James Version. It basically carries this idea of a complete lack of restraint. No concern whatsoever for what God thinks or others think. That's what's being spoken of here. He says, everything from that, just a total disregard for all that is good. He says that, to jealousy, right? Longing for that which someone else has. So the point is not simply avoid these 15 things. The point is, everything from jealousy to licentiousness, that these things come not from the Spirit, but they come from your flesh. They come from within you. They're not external, they're internal. And what needs to be addressed is not the fruit, but instead the root. 
precisely what Jesus was talking about in Mark 7 when the Pharisees, they come to him and they say, why do you, why do you let your disciples eat with unclean hands? And Jesus says, it's, it, are you lacking in understanding? Do you not see that you, you try to hold up these traditions and yet you miss the point? In verse 18 through 23, he says, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Yes, his hands are unclean. Yes, there's grossness and dirtiness on his hands that goes in him. That's not the problem. Because it go, does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that which is that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Again, we see a similar kind of list, but it's not an exhaustive list. The point is, don't avoid this list. The point is, this is what's inside your heart. And what comes out of you is the problem. So he says, all these things proceed from within. And they defile the man. They make the man unclean. So when we practice these things, when these things are in our lives, it's an evidence that we are feeding the flesh. So having seen the evidence of feeding the flesh, let's consider our second point. Point number two, the outcome of feeding the flesh. We saw the evidence. Now let's look at the outcome. Look at the, verse, the rest of verse 21 with me. Paul says, Of which, this list, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you. So Paul's saying, just as when I was there before, I warned you of this. This is essential to the gospel. I, 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 this was the, one of the first things I taught, I think is what he's saying. I forewarned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the last thing I want to do is make this message this. Right? The last thing I want to do is turn this message into don't be immoral. Don't be impure. Don't live out sensuality or idolatry or sorcery. Right? The last thing I want to do is make this message legalistic, which is exactly what Paul was teaching against. The last thing I want to do is make this a list of things not to do. But he says, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The key word here is practice. And it carries the idea of ongoing, habitual participation in sin. Though it's not the same Greek word that's used, we get a clear picture of this in 1 John 2 and 3. Starting at verse 29 of chapter 2 and going through 3.10, he says, if you know that He is righteous... You know that everyone, who, everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. See how great a, fa- a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as to what we will be. We haven't arrived yet, is what he's saying. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. We're waiting for that time when we are made perfect because we will see Him just as He is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself. So if you have that hope, you fight sin. You purify yourself just as He is pure. But, verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. 
No one who abides in Him sins. That is, continues in sin. No one who continues in sin has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil is sin from the beginning. And he goes on and says, No one who is born of God practices sin. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. He says it's evident. See, this really drives at the heart of Paul's concern. He says, Galatians, I love you. Don't abandon the Gospel. Run to the grace of Christ. Be free in Christ. But don't continue in sin. Because if you continue in sin, if you practice sin, if this is an ongoing pattern of your life, it means you don't understand the Gospel. God's work is effective to grow us and change us. So he's not saying, therefore, don't do this list and you'll be saved. What he's saying is, if you're saved, there will be a battle. There will be a war within you and you won't want to do these things. There will be times, believer, where you will stumble and fall. That's part of the Christian life. Where we, we fall and we get back up and we hate our sin. That's Romans 7, right? Where Paul says, wretched man that I am, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And why don't I do the things I do want to do? But he sees himself as a sinner in need of a Savior. He's not content in his sin. That's why Paul, when writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I'm afraid that when I come to you, I'm going to find that some of you have sinned and you haven't truly repented of your impurity, your immorality, and your sensuality. He says, I'm afraid that it's going to be evident that you're content to continue in your sin. And if you're content to continue in your sin, you obviously don't know the grace of Christ. So when Paul says in verse 21, of this list I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, what he's doing is he's issuing a warning. He's saying that the way of the Christian is not practicing sin, but fighting sin. The battle of verse 17 is real in the life of the believer. And if it's not for you, do not be fooled. Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, I want to be careful. Because your salvation is not dependent on how well you fight sin. Instead, the fruit of salvation, the natural result of salvation, is a battle It's fighting sin. And the natural result of living in the flesh, feeding the flesh, is this, these sinful deeds. So having seen the evidence of feeding the flesh, the, the deeds of the flesh themselves, and the outcome of feeding the flesh, that it's destruction, now let's consider the evidence of following the Holy Spirit. The evidence of following the Spirit. Look at verses 22 through 23 with me. Starting at verse 22, he says this, But the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast to the deeds of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, I hope to not focus too much on the list. I know you've probably gone through this list and have heard sermons on the list of the fruit of the Spirit. But I don't want to miss what Paul is actually saying. Instead, I want to step back and look at the list in its context and see that Paul, what he's really doing is he's continuing to issue this warning. If your life is marked by this there's problems. That leads to destruction. If your life is marked by this, then grace lies ahead of you. Continued grace and rescue 
salvation. Over here, no salvation. Over here, salvation. But he doesn't say that we earn our salvation. The result of salvation, the fruit of salvation, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice the contrast between deeds, our work, which we produce, and fruit, His work in us. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is the result of God's work in the life of the believer. You see, every Christian receives the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation. That's what Romans 8-9 teaches. He says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. There are some who teach that you need some second work of grace, that if you're going to live an effective Christian life, you need the Holy Spirit to come into your life in some special, miraculous way after salvation, and that He will allow you, enable you to live an effective Christian life. And there are churches, denominations, whereby I wouldn't be able to serve as a pastor because I haven't displayed the necessary evidence of the Spirit's work in my life. Namely, Speaking in tongues. Right? So, I don't see that in the text. The fruit of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. No, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the marks of the believer. That's Paul's point. His point is not, be loving, be joyful, be peaceful, be patient, be kind. And this is how we take this text way too much. The point is, Examine your life. Are you loving? Do you have joy? Do you have peace? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you good? Does goodness come out of you because it's what's inside of you? Are you faithful? Are you gentle? Do you exhibit self-control? Because if so, those things are yours and they are increasing. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. And if they're not yours, but instead your life is marked by these other things, You need to be careful. You need to examine your life and and ask yourself, am I indeed in the faith? Because every believer is given the Spirit at the time of salvation. We don't have time to look at these other verses, but 1 Corinthians 12.13 says the same thing. We're baptized in one Spirit. In Ephesians 1, 13-14, you were sealed with Him with the Holy Spirit of promise that you were given the Holy Spirit when you were saved. So if the Spirit dwells within you, and He does with every Christian, then the fruit of the Spirit is not our doing, but His work in us. And every Christian should bear fruit. Thus Paul's point is that these characteristics are necessary evidence of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. That's why he says in Matthew 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you will know them by their fruits. How do you know that the Spirit is working in the life of the believer? The fruit of the Spirit is evident. See, each of these qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, they reveal the very nature of God. 
So it's only natural that as we walk with God, as we become more Christ-like, like He promised we would, that the characteristics would become more evident in our lives. Because as we know, God causes all things to work together for good to make us more like Christ. That's what Romans 8, 28-29 teaches. You see, this is indeed meant to be a warning. There's evidence of the Spirit. The evidence of the Spirit should be part of the believer's life. He says, as we walk by the Spirit and we experience His love, it causes us to love others. As we experience the joy that He gives us, it causes us to live out that joyfulness. As we experience peace, we live in peace with others. I hope you see this strange connection in Galatians that exists where he constantly points to loving one another. And even, even the ministry of Jesus says, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That the natural outflow of loving God is loving others. The natural outflow of being at peace is living in peace. He says, and if these things are not evident in your life, there's a problem. We can go through the list that as we, as He is patient toward us, we become more patient with others. As He is kind toward us, we become more kind with others. As we experience His goodness, we exhibit and mirror that goodness. So having seen, number one, the evidence of feeding the flesh and the outcome of feeding the flesh, and then thirdly, the evidence of following the Spirit, now let's consider fourthly, the outcome of walking by the Spirit. He says, walk by the Spirit and if you're walking by the Spirit, these fruit, this fruit of the Spirit will be evident in your lives. Look at the end of verse 23 with me. He says, against such things there is no law. In other words, he says, walking by the Spirit means no longer striving under the weight of the law, but the law is not invalidated. Our hearts now delight in doing His will. That our hearts are changed and that there's this, new, this newness that flows out of us. And it's marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That those are marks of a believer. However, he says in verse 24, he says, Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says that the law is not invalidated, but instead we live out the fact that we have crucified the flesh. What he's saying is this, we made a decision. We made a decision to be done with the flesh. The text here, the, the uh, have crucified the flesh, points to what Christ accomplished on the cross. So we're still living it out, but Christ finished it. It's a snapshot of an event. It's a decision that we made to let Christ work mightily in us, and now we need to live it out. We need to strive to live out the reality that the decision has been made. And it's hard. It's like a... John MacArthur uses the analogy, it's like a chicken with its head cut off. That our sinful nature continues to have effect, it continues to run around in our lives, and we have to battle against it, but it's as good as dead. That ultimately, there is no law, we're not condemned by the law any longer, but instead, we have crucified the flesh with its sinful desires and passions. So the question is this, by way of review... First of all, review, we need to ask, we need to see the evidence of feeding the flesh that is practicing sin and that the outcome is death and defeat. 
And the evidence of following the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit, and the outcome is victory in life. So the question we ask is this, so how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? Well, number one, I would say we need to examine ourselves. We need to consider what evidence of the work of the Spirit there is in our lives. We need to consider, when we look at our lives, what do we see? Do we see the deeds of the flesh, or do we see the fruit of the Spirit? And when I say that, please do not hear me say, therefore, produce the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, what we do is we abide in the vine. That's John 15. We look to Jesus. We let Him produce that fruit in us. And please do not hear me say that these things are, are that they come all at once, or that every person is full of goodness, every person is full of kindness, that we're all as patient as we could be. That's the message of Peter. He says, if these things are yours and if they're increasing, they won't render you fruitless or useless. But instead, these things should be growing in us. That when we look at each other in the church, we should say, that person loves others and they love God. That's evident in their lives. The Spirit is alive and well in them. When we came here four, year, four, four and a half years ago, we actually moved back from Virginia. We had a church all picked out, uh, pretty much. We were pretty much convinced that we were going to attend a specific church. We knew doctrinally, they just fit well. This church, it seemed like it was where we were going to go. We knew some people there. And um, we went, we visited this church, we walked in, and nobody said hello. Um, the pastor who knew me said hello at the end. Uh, but, but the people didn't say hello. There was no response. There was no warmth. There was no love. And we walked out, just our heads hung, and thought, we won't go back. Right? They, they may have great doctrine, but there's no evidence. Evidence of love for each other. Evidence of love for God displays itself in love for others. We came here, and it, the thing we said was, Wow, the people love each other and they love God. Praise God for that. And that's the evidence of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. So he says, not this, the deeds of the flesh, but this. And the point is not, so therefore, work hard to do this. The point is, if this is your life, then examine yourself and say, what am I trusting in? My own ability to to live in light of the law? Or am I trusting in Christ? Because when I trust in Christ, the natural result is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So examine ourselves. That's what we need to do. And then we need to be led by the Spirit. We need to strive hard to follow after Him. This isn't just a let go and let God message. We strive hard. We fight. But we fight resting in His grace. We fight each battle knowing that ultimately He has won the war. That He's the one who enables us to get up and fight our sin day by day by day. So I would encourage you, don't be content in your sin. Do battle with it. Do battle with it daily. Fight hard. Listen to the message of 13 through 15 of Galatians 5. You're called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But then also listen hard to the message of Galatians 5, 16 through 18. There's going to be a battle, and you're going to lose some of the battles. But Christ has won the war. Both of those things are true, and we live in that glorious truth as believers. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, I thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, I thank you that you have given us the ability to walk by the Spirit, but that by the power of your Spirit, we can indeed have victory over sin. God, we know that our flesh remains and that we must do battle. God, we know that we can achieve victory not by our own human effort, but by the strength that You provide, by You working in us and through us as we follow You. But God, we know also that though we may lose some battles, that You have ultimately won the war. God, that You have defeated the flesh. And we wait for that to be finally and ultimately realized in the return of Your Son, Jesus. God, until that day, help us to fight Help us to fight well. Help us to examine ourselves and see if we are indeed bearing the fruit of the Spirit or if we are indeed feeding our flesh. God, because we are believers, help us to not feed our flesh at all. God, but instead, to live in a way that is glorifying to You, to live a life worthy of the Gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.